0: Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter sixteen, as we uh, we continue working our way through Genesis. Uh, this morning we are continuing in the narrative of Abraham. Uh, you'll remember that the book of Genesis tells us about the creation of the world uh, and Adam and Eve and their sin, their fall in the garden. This was on behalf of all of us that Adam did this, and so all of us have been dragged into the sin and guilt and curse that belonged to Adam. But God immediately there in Genesis 3 tells us that He is going to deliver us from that curse, and the rest of Scripture is is unfolding this truth, and we're in the the narrative of Abraham, which is is where in history God particularly uh, comes into the world, if you will, and, and pronounces the promise to Abraham through whom Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, will come. The story of Abraham is an honest story, uh, which is, is more than saying simply that the facts are true, but that we get a very real representation of Abram, uh, later Abraham. Uh, he's, he's not pictured as the ideal person, not pictured as a sinless person, not pictured as one for whom faith comes easily, but his story is one of triumph in the faith and failure over and over, back and forth, and we've come from a a section of significant triumph in chapter 14, where he uh, conquers kings and kingdoms, and in 15, God comes to him and finally makes that covenant that he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, This morning, coming right out of that chapter of promise, we come to uh, a particular failure on the part of Abram and Sarai, his wife. Uh, This narrative, remember, exists in a larger context. We're going to meet a character, uh, a person in the the text this morning named Hagar. She's Sarai's servant, and she's an Egyptian, we're told. Almost certainly someone acquired by them uh, during their time in Egypt, which itself was not a good idea, right, Uh, for them to go down there and the, the things that took place there in Egypt, all very unfortunate. We come to that again this morning. Uh, such a mess as Abram and Sarai listened to the world rather than God. Uh, use and discard a person as though she were a mere thing. And God speaks to Hagar rather than Abram and Sarai because he is the God who hears and sees. Let's pray, and we'll read the text together. Father, this morning we pray that as we open up your word, as this word is read, as this word is preached, that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of everyone who hears. Father, if there are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, we pray that you would raise them up to new life. Those of us who know you, who are already alive in Christ, and yet struggle week in and week out to remember who we are, to remember who the world is Uh, who struggle to to remember and to believe that you see and you hear, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, equip us for the week to come, encourage us in the truth of your promises, and give us the, the endurance that we need to patiently wait for those promises as they come. We pray that you would do all of these things for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who uh, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's, uh, it's a simple story in many respects this morning, uh, and there are some simple truths that we would take from it. First, that the world is a blind guide. The world is a blind guide. Second, that God's word is our sure guide. God's word is our sure guide, and God sees and hears the cries of the oppressed. God sees and hears the cries of the oppressed. To the first, the world is a blind guide. Abram and Sarai are acting very much in the text this morning in accordance with what the world says is true. The text doesn't draw this out explicitly, but as we, we read, we see obvious influences that they are uh, a subject to. Now, we shouldn't too quickly dismiss these things uh, as as though the the lessons that we have to learn in this are you know the simple lessons of a sort of after school special for those of you old enough to remember the after school special obvious mistakes with easy answers sarah was was taught implicitly by her culture that her value her worth her honor was bound up in her ability to give children to her husbands. I'm sure that that Sarai wanted children of her own, but notice that she so badly wants children that she is willing even to give her servant over as a surrogate. There is a, a cultural drive for Sarai here. The culture says, this is the highest good for you. And she has believed it and so deeply taken that into her heart that she is willing even to engage in this sort of surrogacy. Her failure to have children was not only keeping her from honor in this culture, but was itself the, the cause of shame. It's a powerful and deeply rooted cultural norm and one that that Sarai doesn't seem to question. Her plan to give her servant to Abram was actually very much a a culturally acceptable thing. Uh, It seems so strange to us, so very weird and wrong for her to say to Abram, take my servant as your wife and have children by her so that I will have children. And yet, in the ancient Near East, this was an acceptable form of surrogacy. They've believed, her and Abram together, that this is is a perfectly okay way to solve the problem that we have, which is that we have no children. I don't want us to miss this either. The world is not inadvertently a blind guide. The world is a blind guide to us because the world is in service to the serpent. The world is in service to Satan. It is in rebellion against God, and therefore, what it values is determined by its own sinful character. It's fascinating to see how Moses, the author of Genesis, chooses to express the the facts in this story. Abram and Sarai here reenact the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. We're told in Genesis 3 that Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And here in the text, very explicitly, Sarai takes her servant and gives her servant to Abram. Adam, who willingly received the fruit and ate, knowing that it was a sin against God. Abram willingly taking Hagar to himself, knowing that she is not his wife nor the one to whom the promise has been given and conceives by her. And just as Adam and Eve's actions conceived sin and death, so we see a conception here with Abram and Hagar. Moses wants us to see in this text that what, what Abram and Sarai are engaged in is nothing more or less than worldliness. It is is an abandonment through impatience, or faithlessness, or both. An abandonment of God's promises and trust in Him, and instead trusting in the world. When the world says, this is what you ought to have, and you ought to get it at any cost. The world is a blind guide. You see, under the influence of the world, a world whose ethic is formed in rebellion against God, Abram and Sarai reprise the roles of Adam and Eve in the fall. The world is a blind guide. The difficulty is knowing where we've unwittingly embraced the world's folly. Again, this is not a a simple obvious, uh, this is right, this is wrong, the, the world is is lying here and the truth is X and Y. It's incredibly subtle things. Wanting children isn't a bad thing. God had even promised children to Abram and Sarai. It's, it's not unreasonable for Sarai to want children. What do we value that seems like it couldn't possibly be wrong, but which leads us into lives lived contrary to God's word? That's the diagnostic question. What do we value that seems like it couldn't possibly be wrong, but which leads us into lives lived contrary to God's word? I'm going to give some examples here. Some of these, you know, happen to be hobby horses of mine. I apologize. They're, they're excellent examples because, I think, of the subtlety with which they've worked their ways into our lives. How do we spend the Sabbath? Because, you see, when we don't spend the Sabbath taking hold of the promises of God, the blessings of God, when we don't spend the entire day engaged in His worship and resting in His promises... When we give the day away, we always do it because the world has told us there's something better. Because the world has abandoned the Sabbath, the world does not value the Sabbath, and the world would argue that it is absurd for us too, so that it has permeated even our churches and our Christian schools There's nothing sacrosanct about Sunday anymore in our culture, and that culture demands that if you would be a part of that culture, you will participate in the activities they have planned on Sunday. And you know what? The reality is that most evangelicals don't bat an eye. It doesn't even occur to them that this day has been set apart and made holy by God for our good And that pursuing the things the world says we must pursue on a Sunday are not the things that God has said are good for us on Sunday. No matter how good they are. I mean, we all want our children to enjoy playing sports and to be physically healthy, to learn the lessons that are clearly taught in team athletics. There's so many things available to us to spend a Sunday doing other than resting in the promises of God. They're not bad things, but they are not those things given to us on the Sabbath. The busyness of the world which crowds out our faith. I obviously only have direct experience of of this world for the last 49, almost 50 years. But I know in my lifetime, it seems as though we have never been busier. And I mean this as a culture. We have so much, whether it is our business or our pleasure, we we have completely crowded out everything else. How has the busyness of the world so penetrated your life and the life of your family that it has crowded out faith? You don't have time as a family anymore to be in God's Word. You don't have time as a family anymore to be in prayer. You don't have time as a family anymore to be a part of the the, the church gathered as we get together for prayer on Wednesday night, for worship as we return on a Sunday evening. How are you not participating in the life that God has called you to because you're too busy with the things that the world has said matter more? It's the same principle as, as the, the Sabbath except it, it's extended out into the rest of your week. How often do you come in here on a Sunday morning and the last time you thought about God was when you were here last Sunday morning? And how much of that is the result of just being flat out too busy? And who told you that that busyness was so important? God comes into the garden in Genesis 3, doesn't he? And he says, where are you guys? Why are you hiding? Oh, we're naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that it was so important for you to abandon God's Sabbath? Who told you it was so important to fill your days with anything other than God? And could it possibly have been God that told you? It's the world. The world is a blind guide. Our unwillingness to tell others about Christ because our culture has said that faith is a private thing. Believe what you like, but keep it to yourself. And don't tell me because it's none of your business what I believe. And we throw our hands up and too quickly we say, "Ah, yeah, not supposed to talk about faith. Students and even adults What about social media? What about how we use it? What about how social media informs us about what's right and wrong, what has value and doesn't? We are in the middle of an epidemic culturally right now with our children because social media has so pervasively informed them about what and who and how they must be in order to have value. And we have got kids committing suicide and suffering from depression at historic rates because the world is a blind guide, and they are, they are spending hours every day hearing only that message. What about the very clear value of the world that it must be me first? Take care of yourself first, don't let anybody disrespect you, or that you need to be a person who has and knows how to wield power and influence in business, in politics. Here's one. How about the lie of the southern culture that you can't have anyone into your home unless your house is ready to be a spread in southern living? And for this reason, we will not show hospitality because it's exhausting. Listen, I'm not saying everyone's called to the ultimate expressions of hospitality. People have gifts, right? Exercise your gifts. But if you never show hospitality to anybody because you just can't afford the time to make your house beautiful, you are living according to a value that the world has taught you, not God. I can't recall Paul ever saying in any of his letters, make sure your house is properly vacuumed. And that all of the furniture is in exactly the right place and the magazines are structured correctly and that you have a really impressive bit of food to have out that people will be impressed with and feel loved by. No. The expectation that our homes must be perfect or we cannot welcome people into them is a southern idol. And I say southern. You go up north, they don't have this problem. You go to other parts of the world, they don't have this problem. It is a uniquely southern issue, culturally speaking. It, I, what I'm trying to do is I want you to see, it's easy to stand up here and say, the world is a blind guide, and say, that's right. I mean, that same-sex stuff, that's a mess. Abortion, oh, that's wicked. That's wicked. Well, those things are true, but, but listen, we have believed far more subtle lies that are wrecking our faith every bit as effectively, and all the while we are congratulating ourselves. Listen, the world is a blind guide, and we have got to abandon it. That last example of the Southern culture might have cut too deep. I'm going to move on. Do you see the, the, the issue? Culture runs deep, and we have to live in this culture. We are not about to start an all-saints All Saints monastery, right? We live in the world, and there's no escaping it, and that is by God's design. But we are not to live according to the world. The culture is formed collectively by people and powers that are not in glad submission to God, but in open rebellion. And culture, which is not itself a bad thing, has become an effective tool of the evil one to keep people from Christ and weaken the faith of those who belong to Christ. The world is a blind guide, and we must begin by believing that this is true. Don't hand wave this this truth. Yes, yes, the world's a blind guide, I know. Take that truth in. Believe it deeply. Learn to recognize where the world is influencing us. This requires Bible study and prayer. You must know God's Word and be in vital relationship with Him in order to to gain that sensitivity to the truth of the ways in which the world is lying to us. Turn from those lies and trust God instead. Live according to His Word. By the way, Ishmael's descendants are the Arab people who to this day are fulfilling the prophecy spoken of Ishmael and his offspring here, constantly embattled, living against their brothers, against their neighbors, and every hand against them. What a mess when we make trusting the world rather than God the way that we live. Second this morning, God's word is our sure guide. This is the antidote to the lies of the world. Because Abram and Sarai's story is compressed, it's difficult for us to to understand how two people with such amazing promises from God could do such a foolish thing. But it's been ten years since God called Abram away from his home and his family to the promised land. He came with little else than God's promise. And when Ishmael's born, he's 85 years old. From a a worldly perspective, time is running out. Sarai is 75, with no, no childbearing in sight. So we shouldn't be too quick to click our tongues and wag our fingers at Abram and Sarai. Nonetheless, they were not without God's promises. They were not without His Word. Had they only trusted God, this entire sorry episode could have been avoided. So how should we live in this world? We should live with God's Word as our sure guide. In Scripture, we have both the commands and the promises of God, and both must frame how we live. We must live in obedience to God's commands. They are for our good. We must live as though the promises will be fulfilled that requires us to know God's Word. Knowing God's Word, it requires us to trust God's Word. It requires us at times to be patient as God fulfills His promises in His perfect timing. Something, by the way, that's happening on a cosmic time scale. Knowing and trusting God's Word must necessarily result in living according to to that word There's a reason that that both Jews and Christians have been called the people of the book that God has given us his word we have his promises as surely as Abraham had God's promises and too often we neglect Too often, we do not pick up His Word. We do not read. We do not study. We do not meditate on or memorize. Too often for evangelicals, the diet of the Word is that sermon you get when you come in to church on Sunday morning, and you'll get fed again a week from now, same time, same place. And then we're surprised when we discover that the world has misled us about what is right and good and true. We're confused when something that seems like such a good thing turns out to be not a good thing. God's Word is our only sure guide in this world, and that means that we are to turn to it often. We should immerse ourselves in it. Part of the problem uh, with with the way what our sinful hearts tend to do with the way that God has organized His church is that God has given pastors and elders and teachers to the church, and we have mistakenly said to ourselves, I've got one of those guys, I don't need to study it myself. If I need something, I know where to go to get the information. But listen, and and I've said this before, and I want to, to say it again and drive it home, we are not students in a schoolhouse we are people in a vital, life giving relationship with God. And you say, that sounds awfully ethereal. What does it look like to have a relationship with God? It looks like taking His words to you and hearing them and then speaking words back to Him. That's relationship. And what does He say to us? And what do we say back to Him? He says to us, I love you, your sins are forgiven. You belong to me. You have life forever. I made you. And here is the purpose for which I made you. And now, this is what it looks like for you to live that purpose out in the world as you wait for Christ to return. These are the things he says to us. And what what do we say to him? We say to him, you are praiseworthy. And we give thanks to you. And we love you. And we want to obey you. And where we have failed, please forgive us. And change our hearts so that we would look like Christ. Teach us to value what you value. Change our hearts so that our hearts want what you want. Teach us to think your thoughts after you. We're in relationship with God, and when you're in relationship with someone, you talk to them, and they talk to you, and you show love to them, and they show love to you, and this is what we're doing with God so that when we we say on a Sunday morning that God's Word is our only sure guide, and if you don't know that Word, you need to be in that Word. It's not because there's a rule about reading your Bible, and you've got to meet some, some standard about how much you read it. I don't want to drive you to God's Word. I want to tell you that in this Word are the words of life. In this Word, the God who made you speaks to you. How could we not want to hear Him? And you will not hear Him on social media. You will not hear Him on the evening news. You will not hear God on Facebook. This is not where He has taught us. He speaks to his people. God can speak wherever he chooses. But if you ask me, where has he spoke, I will tell you, here in his word. And if you say, I open it, but I don't understand it, it doesn't do me any good when I read it, I'll encourage you a couple of ways. First, practice. It's a relationship. When you meet somebody for the first time, it's often easy to misunderstand them. Or, said the other way, it's often difficult to understand them. You don't know their sense of humor. You you don't know what they love and what they dislike. You're getting to know them. And, And what do we expect of somebody that we've known all our lives? Somebody that we've been with for 20, 30 40 years, we expect to be able to communicate with them nearly telepathically, telepathically, right? I can't say the word. It's harder to say the word than to do it. We expect with our spouses of 40 years at a dinner party to be able to look across the room and make eye contact and know exactly what we're, we're thinking. It's time to go. And without changing your facial expression, the other can say, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> right? We can have a full conversation without any, anything but just eye contact. You can't expect that with somebody you just met. And if you've not gotten to know God in His Word, you shouldn't expect to pick it up and, and get all of the soft, warm fuzzies of God speaking to you every time. It takes practice. You need to get to know this God. There are other ways that we're trying to help, and I say this to you this morning, not just so you'll understand what I'm doing with this text, but so you will know what to do when you open your Bible. The catechism of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is so helpful here when it asks the question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Our first two points this morning are what, we, what, what duty is required of us. The world is a blind guide, and God's Word is our sure guide, and this is what we are called to. And what are we to believe concerning God? That brings us to our third point this morning. We are to believe that God is a God who sees and hears. The second half of our text, uh, you, you see as you look down, uh, the, the angel of the Lord says to Hagar, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael, which means God hears. And having received the message from the the angel of the Lord, Hagar says, you are a God of seeing. We have in these these two names here, the name Ishmael and the name that she gives to God, which is, uh, is... El Roy, by the way, El Roy, the God who sees. So if you're El Roy or know somebody named El Roy, that's what the name means. God sees. We are taught here in the text that God is a God who sees and hears the cries of the oppressed. The truth that Abram and Sarai were living according to the world and not according to God's promises is certainly one of the big ideas in this morning's text, and it's not difficult to see it. More surprising, perhaps, is the fact, the big idea in the second half of the chapter that God's kindness to someone who is a slave is on brilliant display. She is a second wife, although Apart from the single mention of her being made Abram's wife, she's referred to as a servant or slave in the rest of the text. She is a surrogate mother, and she clearly has sin issues of her own. She doesn't handle well the fact that she has conceived, and Sarai cannot conceive, but she is nonetheless mistreated, handled like a commodity, a thing that is merely owned and then discarded. She's not the mother of the promised offspring, She's an Egyptian, a Gentile, someone who has no apparent claim on God, and yet God visits her. Don't miss the fact that God doesn't say a word to Abram and Sarai in this chapter. God doesn't come to Abram here. He comes to Hagar, and He does so tenderly, and He does so with commands and promises. And he reveals himself to Hagar. As he does so, she comes to know that he is a God who hears and a God who sees. And she celebrates this and she worships him for it. We often recognize from Scripture that God is a God who hears and sees with respect to our sin. And that's very true. There's there's no way that we can hide ourselves and our sin from God but this morning it's not the god it's not god the judge who is revealed but god the deliverer it's god the friend of the oppressed and the victims of injustice don't lose sight of the fact that she's not merely a victim she's not merely oppressed it's abram and sarai it is the covenant head that is oppressing her it's their sin that has her on the run And she's, if you were to use a map and the locations that are provided, you would see that she's running pell-mell, headlong, back to Egypt. She's on her way home. She will abandon the tents of the covenant people of God to go home to death, to nothing, to being without God and without hope in the world rather than remain in the tents of Abram. By the way, when it says in verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. It's the exact same verb used to describe how the Egyptians will treat the Israelites in Exodus. How often has our sin against those that we were sinning against How often does it turn them away from God and back to the world? But God is gracious to them and us. He sees and He hears. What does it mean to us that God is a God who hears and a God who sees those who are suffering? The psalmists rely on this truth. How often? In fact, it was in completely unplanned. It was in this morning's psalm. How often does the psalmist cry out and say, Hear me, O Lord. Or even assert, you are the God who hears me. Look upon my affliction, the psalmist says over and over again. The psalmists have suffered, and they call out to God, and He's heard them. How often in our distress have we wondered if God sees, if God cares, if God will act? The answer to those questions is not only yes, but a resounding yes of, all people, God reveals himself to be one who hears and sees those who are oppressed. And so what do we do with this this morning? We'll close with this. First of all, we should not be those who oppress. What, what a, an unfortunate reality it is that rather than being those who draw others to Christ, we are sometimes, because of our sin, driving them away. Don't think for a moment that because you are in Christ and they are not, that God does not see and hear their affliction. We are to love our neighbors. We could spend a considerable amount of time unpacking that. I'm going to encourage you to to consider that yourself. What does it look like to love your neighbors well? How have you not loved them well? How have you been more the cause of your neighbor's turning away from Christ, than toward Him. Rather than oppressing those around us, we should be God's servants toward the oppressed. If God loves the oppressed, if He hears and sees their oppression, how how can we, as His servants, as His children, be an expression of His seeing and hearing to those who are oppressed? And finally, if we are oppressed, we should cry out to God, know that he sees and hears. Go to the Psalms. Listen, no one has ever suffered more injustice and been more oppressed than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God does not simply know about your suffering in Christ. He knows your suffering and suffers with you. Are you living according to the values of this culture this morning rather than God's word? Pray that God would show you where this is true and reshape your heart so that you will desire those things that God desires and live the way God has called you to live. Are you one who is suffering this morning? Are you oppressed? Are you wondering, does God see? Does God hear? God hears you. He sees you. Trust in him and go to his word in prayer, and he will meet you there. Let's pray.